Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Revelation chapter 7, and the word of the Lord reads, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that had no one that no one could number from every nation, from old tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and carrying out and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Pastor and author John Piper wrote this about worship. He said, Worship is what we were created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display his worth of his glory. And he created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The church needs to build a common vision of what worship is and what she is gathering to do on Sunday morning and scattering to do on Monday morning. I don't know about you, but for me, this year, 2020, has felt like it's lasted like a decade. It has been a very, very trying year in many respects. It's been a difficult year for many of us. It's been a painful year for for some of us. I think it's been a very bizarre year for all of us. In fact, I think the number 2020 itself, that, no, that, number, that number, the, the 2020, will forever live in infamy. We will say that, and everybody will hearken back to this time. Everybody will know what we're talking about. It's like when you use the expression or the date 9-11, we know exactly what we're talking about. Well, this is going to be the same thing for this year, I think. Right. Now, for many, including me, this year actually began with a very hopeful feeling to it. We began the new decade of the the Roaring Twenties with a hopeful feeling. And it seemed that many of us had a very clear direction and a very very set plan. I know that we had even a mission, a a ministry calendar that we, we would look to every single year. But quickly, every bit of that has changed. In fact, it seems like everything around us has changed with it. And the truth is, You could actually summarize the entire year of 2020 with just one word, and that is the word change. Because what seems like 2020 has been about change. So many times we say we want change. Well, guess what? We got it. So many things this year have changed. So much of the way that we we do things have changed. In fact, so much of the way that we ended 2019 will seem like and feel like for most, most, many of us like ancient history. You do realize that it was only a year ago that people would, would flood the mall and flood all of the stores on Friday after Thanksgiving called Black Friday. Like people voluntarily crowded together elbow to elbow to fight for you know a cheap television. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people would crowd into restaurants, their favorite restaurants, right? And they would wait in crowded little lobby areas, squeezing together for like 30 minutes so they could just get a seat. Like, we we all done that. There was a time when you would use hand sanitizer on your kids because they touched something dirty. Now you, you disinfect them every time they touch anything. We used to hug we used to shake hands, and we didn't even think about it. Somebody stuck out their hand, you just shook it. Somebody leaned in to hug, you just hugged them. 
Sometimes even if you didn't want to. We used to call people who would hesitate shaking hands germaphobes. We used to make fun of them, right? That was a character on, you know, on Fraser. We used to not even notice when people would cough or sneeze around us. It was, it was like background noise. But now somebody coughs or sneezes, it's like, like a gunshot went off around us, right? It has everybody's attention right now. We used to feel safe in numbers. Do you remember that time? When like you would feel safe when you're around other people. Now we feel safe when we're isolated. I mentioned last week that a year ago, I went to Georgia with Kim and Michaeli and uh, Mike and Sarah and Hugh. And we all went because, again, the focus was on worship. And that's what we wanted all to go and hear and learn more about. And everywhere we went was crowded. I want you to understand that. Like everywhere we went, like I actually bumped into Bodie Bauckham, right? That's how crowded it was. Like, I rubbed shoulders with Paul Washer. That's, you know, how close everyone was. And we didn't think anything about it. Not any of us squeezing into the elevator and then seeing other Christians trying to get in and everybody kind of crowd up a little bit tighter so we can get a couple more people in this little bitty box. It's unthinkable now, right? But that was, it was natural. Or when we crowded into the, uh, the shuttles that took us from the, from, from the convention center to the airport, we didn't have any problem squeezing in there especially the van that took us back and forth from the hotel. Like if there was like that much room, we were going to get in it because we didn't want to wait an hour and a half for the next one. It was normal. No one was wearing masks. People didn't stand six feet apart. I'm afraid all that has changed. I don't know that it's ever going to come back. So as our collective vocabulary has changed, we've adopted new words and expressions that I fear that it will always be with us. I mean, there are words and expressions that we have adopted in the last 20 years because of technology that no one even heard of before, like being online. What does that mean, right? Email. But now we have words like Corona, uh, I mean, COVID-19, right? We're forever going to remember what that is. Or it's even reduced down to the Ronas, right? Everybody knows what you're talking about now. Or expressions like social distancing, we didn't even know what that was 12 months ago. Or face coverings. Or the overused expressions like, we are in unprecedented times. I swear, I don't want to hear that ever again. I know <laughs> we're in unprecedented times. You've told me a thousand times already. Or how about this one? The new normal. The new normal. If there's a phrase I'm afraid that we're going to get comfortable with, if there's a phrase that I think is going to stick and define us, it's this one, the new normal. What is that even supposed to mean? If you want to understand how much things have changed in the world around us, just think about this expression and its scope when people use it. Anything that happens that's out of the ordinary because of COVID-19, that's just the new normal. It's this idea that everything has been normal, that all the things that we have taken for granted to be routine, all the things that have been around us that are the status quo, generally the way things are, all of that is new. It's new. It's not like it used to be. From the way the kids go to school, to our chagrin, my youth group kids, I'm praying for you guys all the time. You know that, right? From the way that we buy groceries, to the way that you travel now, to the way that you connect with and visit with your families and friends. I mean, we just had Christmas. And I can't tell you how many people I know that have spent Christmas alone. Their kids didn't see them. Their grandkids didn't come and see them. Right? All of the old normal seems to be, have been replaced by something new. And I want you to understand, just because it's new doesn't mean that it's improved. The fact is that in many respects, the new normal is heartbreaking and very disconcerting. And, and the consequences of this new normal that we have embraced so quickly will end up being more life-changing and more far-reaching than we can possibly imagine. I just want to think about, for a second, the new normal for these kids. We have no idea what's going to happen as a result What's the collective health 
problems that are going to happen to this generation from missing a full year of athletics? What's going to happen to them educationally? What's going to happen to them socially and emotionally? We already know that, that, that these things are already backfiring, that the cure is worse than the disease. The consequences are, are, are astounding. And this is just one area of our lives. We're not even talking about financially. This could be more far-reaching than we can imagine. In addition to those things changing, people's minds have changed staggeringly. People's minds have changed on things like freedom. Well, once we valued freedom, suddenly we're, we're ready to give it up. People's minds have changed things about things like security. And, and even hope and our, the source of our hope. I just cannot, for the likes of me, fathom the idea that people are placing their hope in the government to do something about this. I mean, I understand, you know, this is a widespread issue. Right? But even now, I mean, I've heard people say that they're willing to get the vaccine, not because they're afraid to get the virus, so that they can end the shutdown, as if there's no other choice. Like, if you don't get a vaccine, we can't open things back up. That just does not make sense to my, to my mind. But, but the thing is, is the collective mind of our, of, of our world has changed. And, and, and within 2020, it's been a very polarizing time with respect to all of these things. In fact, it doesn't seem like there's any middle ground on a number of issues. People have very strong views on everything nowadays, and it seems like there's no middle ground from things like wearing masks or staying home or, or closing businesses or travel or, or gatherings. We have, and, and the worst part is people have really divided themselves up into extremes. There's always been extreme views, but it seems like more people have moved to the extreme and there are fewer people in the middle. Like you have people on the one end of the extreme who think that this is all a big hoax. And they make fun of people who have, who have taken this pandemic seriously and they ridicule those who are concerned about the health effects. The fact of the matter is, is we know that it's a real virus that has real consequences and health effects. We know that. But there are some people that just will just stand in their, on their soapbox and lampoon people who take it seriously. But then you have people on the other end who are driven by fear to the point that they believe everything they're being told by the media and the government, and they condemn anybody else who just asks questions and want more proof. They're gladly to give up their freedoms to feel safe, and they resent those who think that maybe the government might be overstepping its bounds. Those who happen to be in the middle, who take it seriously, but are also concerned about the overreach of the government because of the pandemic, they actually get it from both sides now. Instead of being the voice of reason for everyone around them, now they're the ones that are hated by everybody around them. 2020 has been a very strange year. And with all of this, what do we do with this? And I mean us as, as Christians. I mean... We're affected by this in every other part of our life. But what about us as Christians? What does all this have to do with us? What does it mean for us? What's the new normal for us as the church? The thing that we need to realize is the church is the pillar and the buttress of the, of the truth. It's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Right. We're the pillar and the buttress of the truth which means we are the hope of the world. The church is God's instrument that he is using to fulfill his redemptive plan and mission in the world. The church is God's instrument that he is using to bring other people into his family. The church is the indispensable part of God's plan. What does the new normal mean for us as the church? Has everything changed for us as well, or has it not? Now, the reality is many things around us have changed. And many of the things around us will not ever go back to the way things were, as much as I would like to think that they will. This is the truth. Some of the things that have changed are unchangeable to change back. But what does that mean for us as the body? What does it mean for the church at large? You may not realize it, but there's actually a lot of opinions on this particular subject about how this affects the church. Opinions from pastors and theologians 
Opinions from politicians, like we need more of that. Opinions from community members, even even some opinions from from members of this very church. There are lots of strong opinions about the new normal, what it means for the church at large, but also for the church here at First Baptist in particular. Opinions about what the new normal should be, how we should operate, how things should look. And as a pastor of this church, I have listened to many of these opinions because we are in unprecedented times. I have never gone through this. So I have made it my point and mission to listen carefully. But with that, I believe what is more important than our opinions on this matter is what does the Word of God say about this? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take some time this morning. We're going to walk through the Word of God And we're going to talk about the new normal and how that affects the church. Now with that, what you have to understand is like so many things, the Bible doesn't expressly say, thou shalt do this when the new normal comes. Okay, It's it's not laid out like that. It doesn't say that, hey, in case of pandemic, here's how you do it. It doesn't tell us that when the coronavirus visits, these are the steps you take in the church. It's not how the Bible works. The truth is the Bible doesn't directly answer our question here to move forward in a post-COVID world. In fact, the Bible doesn't, uh, oftentimes doesn't directly answer a number of our questions. Right? Sometimes you know, we have to really dig and seek the wisdom of God because it doesn't directly say. Like for instance, you know, people want to know what the Bible says about dating. Go ahead and look. It doesn't talk a lot about dating. It talks about marriage. So you have to build your theology first. What the Bible is, is, is it does give us a clear picture of who God is. That's the truth, right? And that's the place you have to start is with your theology. Who is God and what has he done for us and what does he expect from us? The Bible gives us a theology about God and that is the framework on which we build our lives, by the way. That's the framework on which we make decisions. We build our life and we center our life around who God is and what he has done and not how the world is. That's the difference between us and the rest of the world. That's the difference between how we're going to answer this question. The rest of the world is going to look at the world and say, this is what you need to do. We don't do things that way. We must start with what the Word of God says and who God is, and then we build our understanding off of that. This is a very important issue. I think we need to be, we need to be straight about in our lives. Our theology determines how we interact with the world, not the other way around. Our theology is the framework on which we make decisions about things like this. Who God is shapes how we answer these kinds of questions. So we don't start with our understanding of COVID and and, and what the world says in response to it to figure out how to move forward. We start with our understanding of God and His Word because our understanding of who He is and what He's commanded of us and what He has done for us is still going to shape every part of our lives. The nature of who God is should impact how we live as parents and how we live as spouses and employees and neighbors and fellow church members. How we respond to the new normal must be rooted and grounded in our theology. And the Word of God not only gives us a theology of Himself, but it also gives us the theology of the church itself. An ecclesiology is what it's called. God created the church. God is the one who ordained the church. And he is the one who determines how the church is made up. And he is the one who decides how the church gets operated in all circumstances, even in the new normal. We need to remind ourselves that the biblical understanding of the church is where we need to begin. We need to understand what the church is and why he created it the way he did. Only then can we answer the question then of how we are to live in a post-COVID world. Only then can we answer the questions of the new normal and how it affects the church and church life. It's not about our opinions. It's about what the Word of God has to say. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to wrap up 2020. I really wish we were wrapping up with something much more fun than this, right? But we're going to wrap up 2020 by looking at the Scriptures for what God has to say about the church and and how the church is supposed to operate and how it's supposed to live, right? And how we're to be a part of the church 
Because obviously now we're talking about the future. And where we need to begin is with the foundational question of what is the church? Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, pastor. Why are we starting there? I mean, we know what the church is. I mean, we're here, right? I mean, we know that we're the church. We know that, that the church is the gathering of God's people and we're gathered in this room right now. We know. Well, the reason for this is sometimes we overlook, in our complicated world, we overlook the importance of the simple and fundamental and foundational things. Sometimes we forget the importance of the basics. Sometimes we forget the answer isn't always in complexity, but it's really found in foundational simplicity. And we see this in other parts of our life as well. In fact, the famous example of that is, is the 1961 Green Bay Packers football team. In July of 1961, 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team gathered together for the first day of training camp. The previous season had ended with a heartbreaking loss when the Packers squandered a late fourth quarter lead and lost to the, champion, the championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. This is before the actual Super Bowl. The Green Bay Packers players had been thinking about this brutal loss for the entire offseason, and now finally training camp has arrived, and it was time to get to work, and the players were eager to advance their game and to get to the next level and start working on the details that would help them to win the championship. But their coach, Vince Lombardi, famously had a very different idea. He began by taking them back to the beginning and reminding them of the fundamentals of the game that they were playing. And he began his first speech to them by taking a pigskin ball and hoisting it in the air and said, gentlemen, this is a football. He began to walk them through the basics of the game, reminding them of the essential elements that are required for them to be successful. Because you have to get the basics right Otherwise, you won't be. And so if we're going to be successful as a church to navigate this new world as, as God has intended for us, we need to really focus our minds and our hearts on the basic things and the basic theology of what the church really is. And it begins with what is the church. And what we know is that the church is basically, in this world, is composed of two facets. You have the Universal church, by the way, you see there's a lot of notes there. I promise you we'll go through them fast, okay? <laughs> you have the universal church, and then you have the local church. These are the two expressions we find in the Bible and in the world with respect to the church, the universal church and the local church. Now, the universal church is the worldwide body of true regenerate believers at all times in history. That includes Old Testament believers, by the way. Christ's church is the unified body of those who have been justified by faith. That includes Peter and Paul and King David and Abraham and Noah and even Adam. Because they weren't justified by what they did. They were justified by faith in the Messiah. And that also presently includes those who were born-again believers in this church today. We were part of that same universal church as well as the, 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 the born-again believers in the Assembly of God Church and the born-again believers in the Boron Bible Church and congregations throughout the state and across the nation and around the world, like our brothers and sisters in Kenya and in Pakistan. They are all, like us, part of the universal church. By the way, this is where we get the word Catholic from. Catholic actually means universal. It was just hijacked by a denomination who calls themselves the universal church. Uh, that's a whole different sermon series, by the way. But that being said, they are part of the universal church. And, and all of those who, who hold to the essential teachings of the Christian faith and believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are all part of the universal worldwide church. And as such, they are all family members. They are all family members with us in the family of God. That is the universal church, and that is the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 7, the gathering of the worldwide church in worship. Right? So there is the universal church, but then there's also the local church. 
And what you need to realize is when the Bible talks about the church, most often it talks about the local church. That's what we see throughout Paul's letters. He writes his letters to individual churches. He's speaking about issues in individual churches, local congregations. And the local church can be defined as the local visible manifestation of the body of Christ in a geographic location who gather for regular corporate worship, who encourage, exhort, and equip each other to live on mission for Christ. I'm going to take a minute just kind of unpack that a little bit. This is what the Bible talks about the most, right? And this is what is most relevant to us as we think about what the new normal is for the church. Right? We are thinking in terms of a local, visible manifestation of a body of Christ in a geographic location, specifically on the corner of Boron Avenue and Cody Street in Boron, California, who gather for regular, regular, every week, regular worship, who encourage, exhort, and equip each other to live on mission for Christ. That is the local church. First Baptist Church is then an expression of the local church because we are local and we are visible, right? Because people can see us. They can they drive by, they see their cars in the parking lot. They see that we're here. And we have gathered for a purpose. That is, again, corporate worship, singing, giving, fellowship, reading of the word, preaching of the word. And we come together as a body, worshiping the living God, and then we also praise the Lord. We encourage each other. That's part of the, of the church life, right? Is we're here to encourage one another, to lift each other up. I don't know about you. I don't know what I do without my church family. Right? We exhort one another to grow in a relationship with Christ. And then we equip one another, each one of us helping to disciple each other on mission so we can fulfill the mission that Christ has called us all to. That's who we are, right? We are a local church. The same as our brothers and sisters at the Assembly of God, they are also a local church. Same with the Boron Bible Church, right? And the First Baptist Church in Cal City and the Desert Song Church. They are all visible manifestations of the body of Christ, all of these local churches. And the local church that concerns us and our questions today is this one right here. Now we know that what the church is, let's talk about the purpose of the church. Because I'm going to tell you, there's something that a lot of people get really kind of twisted up on, is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church, many people think, is that we're supposed to go out into the world and we're supposed that the purpose of the church is to just do good things. Here's what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of the church is to glorify God through worldwide worship. That is the purpose of the church. You see, the purpose of the church begins with the same purpose for all other things. And that is the glory of God. I want you to understand, everything has its purpose rooted in that right there, is the glory of God. If we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the, of the foundational purpose of everything else. God created all things for His glory. He created you for His glory. He created the world for His glory, and He created the church for His glory. And the way that, the, that God has ordained for, for Himself to be glorified by the church and by the world is through worship. Again, let me remind you of, of the words of John Piper here. Worship is what we were created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of His glory, and He created us so that we may see His glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The church needs to build a common vision of what worship is and what worship and what she is gathering to do on Sunday morning and scattering to do on Monday morning. God ordained, the God ordained purpose of the church is to gather for worship and then go out into the world and teach other people to do the same and to do the same and to the same and to do the same so that there would be worldwide worship. In fact, let me look with me again at Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, 
and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Whatever your view of the book of Revelation is, whatever place that you start with and whatever way you end with, whatever your perspective on how Revelation works itself out, there is one undeniable truth about the book of Revelation we can all agree on. Revelation is ultimately about the worship of Christ. It is ultimately about his worship. And that's what we see over and over again in the book of Revelation. Multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people worshiping the Lamb, worshiping God worldwide worship of God. This is where all of history is going to, by the way. This is the plan that God has has ordained since time began, that he would have a people who would come together forever and glorify him and worship him forever. It's the common goal of all believers in all of time is to worship God. And that's the purpose of both the local and the universal church. That's what we were created for. That is, that is what we, how we glorify God, is that we participate in the growing worldwide worship, which then leads to the mission of the church. And that is to facilitate the Great Commission. That's how we achieve worldwide worship. It's through the Great Commission. If you remember what Jesus said, he gave instructions to his apostles and to the church. Some of you can memorize, can spout this by memory. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. Not just the people you like. All nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That right there is how the church is to participate in creating worldwide worship. It is through facilitating the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The church accomplishes this by equipping and sending out believers into the world to evangelize the lost. And for those people to then connect with people and create believers and those believers and get baptized into the universal and local church. And then those people get discipled and trained up to worship God, follow Christ, and then join the mission of creating worldwide worship. That is the model that God has ordained for for us. That's the purpose of the church, and that's how it's to be accomplished. The church organizationally is to send out true believers both locally in the community and globally all the way around the world for the spreading of the gospel and calling people to faith and repentance and then connecting those new believers with a local church, which is the hub of the mission and spiritual growth, and then discipling those new believers, teaching them to glorify God in worship and teaching them to join the mission of Christ. And and I say organizationally because the church is both an organism which is a living thing made up of other individual living things. But it is also a God-ordained organization with a very real structure, a very real-world manifestation and form. In fact, the Bible uses structural imagery to communicate this about about the church. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But, But that being said, the church organizationally is to facilitate the Great Commission. That's the mission of the church. And I want you to understand the way that the church accomplishes this is through several key objectives. These are things that you're going to find throughout the scriptures. And they are defending orthodoxy, declaring the gospel, and discipling believers. They are the organizational objectives of the church. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is the foundation and the support of the truth. The church universally and locally are both to defend and to declare the truth of the scriptures and orthodox doctrines. And we've talked a lot about this. This is one of those things we have made a point to talk about because we talk about the local church. The imagery of the foundation and the pillars 
of, of the church. Right? The, the, the imagery of this foundation, this rock-solid foundation and the pillars and on which the truth of the gospel rests is the picture that, that, that Paul is painting. The church is, is the God-given instrument that protects the truth of the gospel. And it does so by identifying false doctrines and teachers throughout history. Right? And then teaching the truth. The church also is to declare the gospel for all who would hear it. The church is to continuously proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, inviting the world to come to the Lord. Right? By the way, the church is to do what Israel of the Old Testament failed to do. We're to do what they failed to do and were judged for by Christ. If you remember, Jesus cleared the temple and said, you've made... This den of robbers is supposed to be a house of prayer. For who? For the world. We are to fulfill that mission to bring the world to God. And we do that through the proclamation of the gospel. So the church protects and proclaims the truth, but it also is the hub of discipleship for believers. The church is instrumental in providing resources and training for discipling and equipping believers to worship God Right? and to follow Jesus and join the mission. The church collectively is an organization, right? but it's a local hub of discipleship, whether it's classes or small groups or even one-on-one -on -one discipleship. This, by the way, is why the idea of a Christian being without a church is really a preposterous idea. The idea of being a Christian apart from the local church is an unbiblical idea. I'm not saying you have to be in a church to be saved, but there is a very clear admission that those who are saved belong to a church. All Christians must be connected to a local body for instruction and for equipping and corporate worship, not to mention the fellowship. There is also the reason, this is also the reason why when people say, I just don't believe in organized religion, that simply they're just making an ignorant statement. And I do understand the sentiment behind that, by the way. I do get it. Because following Jesus is not about joining some club who rules over your life. And it's not about some fraternity. It's about being connected to a family of believers. The truth is God did not create people to live alone in general. Just look around. Just look at, at, at the anxiety and the depression that's happening because people have separated themselves from the world. How much more then are those who are redeemed supposed to live in fellowship with one another? The idea is that we're supposed to live a Christian life, not alone. He rescued us to be a part of a living organism, a body, and an organization. An organization that has a very real structure to it, a structure that God himself has created. Now the Bible will oftentimes describe the church with the structural terms of body, which Christ is the head of the church, and his followers make up his body. And the scriptures make that really clear. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 through 23 say, and we put all thing and he put he God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 gets a little bit more explicit, and he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Or how about Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5? For as in one body we have been, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are not one, I mean, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then there's Ephesians chapter 4, which really, I think, gives the church its mission and really helps to lay out the structure. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is described as a singular structure, a body. Christ is the head, and the rest of us make up his body. And we individually and corporately are united in Christ, but we're also united into each other. Cannot lose sight of that. 
Christ is our head and our leader, and we are his body that functions together to do his will. And that will is to bring about the glory of God through what? Worldwide worship. That is the structure that God has given the church. But there is an additional structure, and I've got a point to make by getting here. There is an additional structure prescribed by the Bible. And that is how the local church is to be organized. Now keep in mind, in the church there are lots of different roles and lots of different positions and ministry opportunities. Right? There's lots of things to do. Right? But there are, but there are three spe- you know, specific structural components that the Bible spells out for us. There are three things that we, that every church, local church, needs to really function the way that God designed for us to. And that is elders and pastors who are the under-shepherds, you know, under the leadership of Christ. They're the theological leaders of the church. You have deacons, leading servants. They're the practical leaders of the church. And then you have members of the church, which includes everyone else, which actually includes everyone, not just everyone else, but everyone, including the pastor and the deacons, right? All believing members of the congregation are considered members. Now, I want to briefly just talk about these these three and how they work and how they serve the mission and the purpose of the church. And the first one is to talk about the elders. Oftentimes, we as Christians get elders and deacons confused. I've heard people talk about them almost like they're the same thing. And and the fact of the matter is, is they're not. They don't function the same. They're completely different offices. Elders of the church are pastors of the church. right? In fact, the office of elder or bishop or pastor or shepherd, it's all the same office. It's referring to the same function in the church. It is the teaching and theological leadership in the church. In fact, Timothy, 1 Timothy tells us uh, that Paul calls them uh, overseers in, in that particular respect. Elders are, are the under-shepherds of the church under the leadership of the headship of, of the, the head shepherd, Christ himself. And the purpose of elders is to glorify God by shepherding God's people. They have been given the task of being an under-shepherd doing and caring for God's congregation. That's the role of the elder. They're to shepherd and spiritually care for the members of the local church in an effort to bring glory to God. They are to lead and guide the congregation uh, through the word of God so that the church grows and matures, fulfilling its mission. That's why we say that pastors and elders are the theological leaders of the church. Now, the mission of elders and pastors that God has given for them in order to accomplish this purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is the foundational thing that pastors and elders do, right? That is their mission, to teach the members of the church to work, to do the works of the ministry so they can go out into the world in fulfillment of the Great Commission. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 4. Again, there's a lot here. I won't spend a lot of time in, in the details because we could spend a lot of time here. It says... And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, the shepherds are pastors and teachers, to equip the saints, the saints are the believers, for, for a reason, and what reason is, the work of ministry. That's what pastors are supposed to do. That is the number one part of the job description of pastors, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I want to be really, really clear, because sometimes we think as believers that the pastor's job is to do all the ministering. And that is not how that works. Okay, I want you to know, sometimes I think I might be superhuman, but some days I'm reminded I'm not, okay? Very much so, right? The pastor's main focus is to equip who? The saints. Who are the saints? You all, the believers, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, spiritual maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Elders are the instrument that God uses to in the church to equip members of the church for the works of the ministry that accomplish the Great Commission. Elders are the instrument that God uses to help the members of the church grow towards spiritual maturity. And they're the way... And they are to also 
teach them and train them so they're not fooled by false doctrines, so they get distracted in their lives and get distracted from the mission of Christ. And this is accomplished, again, this, this, this accomplishes the mission of the elders, but this also gives us clear objectives that elders are supposed to, to do. And the first on the list, all right, elders is a lead. Elders is a lead corporate worship in the local church. That's what pastors are supposed to do, is lead corporate worship for the rest of the church. They submit themselves to the Word of God about what it says about worship and orchestrate corporate worship accordingly. Now, pastors might not actually be on the worship team, but they're still the primary worship leader, which leads to a couple things we need to talk about. Right? Again, the pastor might not be a singer, but, but the pastor still is supposed to set the tone for what the worship of the church is supposed to be. This right here is a truth that the Bible has convicted me of. This is something that, 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 that really pierced my heart. Not to mention corporate worship service is not just about singing, though we talk about it as sometimes as such. The entire service, everything we do here, is about worship. That's why we've been growing in, in how we worship God at First Baptist Church. I don't know if you noticed, but things over time have changed, and they've changed for a reason. Right? You see, the, the, the worship service that we have here doesn't start at 11 with the announcements. That's the creaturely things we do at the beginning that we, need, that we have to get out of the way. Worship begins with the call to worship. This is where we go to the scriptures and we call all of you into the presence of God by his word to come and worship him corporately. Then we come and we sing to him. And we sing to him as, as one voice singing to an audience of one. I've heard somebody say to a very famous pastor, you know, the preaching was great, but the worship, I just, I didn't care for. And he said, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. <laughs> worship is about him. Right? And then we've changed how we select songs. I don't know if you notice, there are some songs that we used to sing, we just don't sing anymore. And it's not that they're bad songs, and it's not that, that you shouldn't sing them on your own, but we've decided as time has gone on that, that just some of those songs don't fit corporate worship. Right? They're just not elevated there. We've, we've decided that, that the music that we sing here must have a clear message about who God is. And that message must be absolutely true. The theology must be spot on. It must be there. It must be theologically accurate. right? And we've decided also that every song must be centered on God and not us. There are a lot of great songs that, have, that are related to Christ, but they're really more about us instead of Him. And that's fine. We can sing those songs. Those are great. But we've decided for worship's sake, these are the songs that we're going to sing. Every song that we have added to our list has been chosen not simply because we like it, and not simply because it sounds good, or that it makes us feel something, though they do, right? Each song has been chosen because we believe in all of our hearts it, it is worship towards God. When we sing them collectively, we're declaring the truth about Him, and we're giving Him praise and glory. But that's not all the things that have changed here, right? I, some of you might remember there was a point in time where we had a music stand here. We decided to bring the pulpit back, and, and there's a reason for that. The reason why we've done that is because we want to emphasize the importance of the preaching of the Word. The preaching of God's Word is central to the worship of God. The declaration of His Word, the exposition of His Word, right? the exhortation is central to worship. Right? It's also the reason why I begin every sermon not with my words, but with the words of God. I want to clearly read the scriptures for you. And I begin and end the scripture reading with a clear declaration that this is the word of the Lord and not the words of Sherman Burkhead. Right? It's, it's an act of worship. I want to declare his words out loud. And that, that my primary preaching style then is, exp, is, is expository, which means my aim is to take the text and not tell you what to think about it, but go to the text and unpack it and show you what it actually says so that you can then take it on your own and read it and check what I'm saying and then grow by it. And then there's the matter of prayer. 
don't know if you realize it, but we pray at least four times every Sunday morning service. At least four. At least four. Somebody up here prays when it's time to release the children to their classes. Somebody prays for the offering. We pray before the reading and the preaching of the word. And then we end each sermon with the with, with prayer as well. It's all on purpose, by the way. And then we announce the end of worship by reminding all of you that you are loved and that you are prayed for. All of these things, I want you to understand, have been thought out. It's not accidental how we do them. They've been thought out, right? We pray about them and we're going to continue to refine them as we grow in our understanding of the worship of God. And as a pastor, that right there is my objective. Now, the second objective is that we need to protect orthodoxy. This is not a very popular topic in the world around us, by the way. This is not one of the things that many people like to talk about or think about. In fact, I, uh, I had a friend who posted a, a picture of himself, like a little cartoon picture, and it says, it says, Merry Christmas to my, my father, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. I'm going, well, wait a minute, you just confused a whole bunch of theological categories there, you know? But the guy is in a mega church, has been for years, and you know, doctrine is a dirty word in their church. I'm seriously, they don't like to talk about doctrine. And in every message I've listened to several always ends with, God loves you no matter what. It's kind of like the, like the point, right? My job as a pastor is to protect orthodoxy, whether we like what it says or not. The truth is the truth and we must always protect it. And we do that by studying and preaching the word and also studying and teaching the creeds and the confessions, like our Baptist faith and message in, the, in our 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I could spend a lot more time talking about that, but I'll move on. Another one, another one of the pastor's objectives is to continually proclaim the gospel. This right here is probably one of the most important lessons I've learned as a pastor. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not the pastor's personality, not my ability to make a good speech. The gospel is the power of God to change lives. The gospel is the power to save lives. The gospel is our hope. And so elders must continually proclaim the gospel so that other people can hear and believe and so that others in the congregation will learn the gospel and be able to then share the gospel and proclaim the gospel so others will believe. The last objective is to pastor and shepherd God's people. Of all the ones that I do, this is the hardest <laughs> because it's not just discipling and teaching people what it means to follow Christ. It's also mentoring other leaders and helping them to grow. And that's the reason why we purposefully invest in the leaders here. That's why we purposefully get people involved and help them to grow. But it's also counseling church members and helping them in their walk with Christ. By the way, probably one of the hardest, hardest, hardest parts of my job right there. I have a heart for marriage, but I'm telling you sometimes people come to me with some of the most tangled marriage problems and I just go, Lord, I just don't know. I am not, if, if there's a time I don't feel like I'm the right guy for the job, oftentimes that's it, right? Now I do my best to pray for them and we've seen you know, marriages you know, restored, but we've also seen you know, people still go the way of the world. It's a very difficult, difficult thing. But the pastor is the overseer of the church, right? And... And he leads through theological leadership in all of these areas. This is the function that God has ordained for the pastor to operate in. Now, deacons, on the other hand, and we'll go quickly through this. Deacons, I think, are underrated in their value. Deacons, on the other hand, are the practical leaders of the church. Deacons' purpose is to, to glorify God by serving God's people. In fact, it's what deacon means. It means to be a servant. The word deacon actually comes from a word that means waiter. Right? The office of the deacon was created specifically to serve the needs of the church, which, which leads then to their mission, and that is to fulfill the Great Commission through acts of service. That's their role. Deacons are qualified members of the church who support the mission of the church through acts of service to the church and, as, and, and to the, the whole community at large as well. Right? They're the ones that are to be loving on people practically. Their objectives are this. Like I said, I'll go quickly. The deacons' elders are the deacons' objectives are to support the elders, 
And they do so by meeting practical needs in the church, like taking care of facilities, technology. No, I'm just kidding. Not there yet. <laughs> when I'm the person who knows the most about technology, we're in trouble, okay? <laughs> um, but they meet the practical needs of the church. Like I said, facilities, making sure things are fixed. Also ministry needs. But one of the very important things that deacons do that a lot of times people don't see is member support. Deacons in our church especially meet people's physical needs when, when they're there, when it comes to, to food or other things. They're there to care for people and help people through difficult times. They're also there for emotional support as well. They're godly men who, who, are, who people can lean on and talk to and get counsel from. And then they also do the community support, which is the reaching out to our neighbors and loving them with food and clothing, etc. Deacons provide the opportunities for the church at large to go out into the community and love on our neighbors so people can see, so people can see the love of Christ and turn to Him. They give us the initiative to go out and be the light of Christ so that the message of the gospel can be heard. Now, getting at the heart of the matter, we're going to come to our final part that structural part of the church, and, and really the point we need to get to as we're going to talk about the new normal. And the thing that we need to keep in mind is all believers in the church are members. Again, that means that the elders are members and the deacons are members. And what we need to understand is deacons and members are not, deacons and elders are not separate, you know, a separate class of member. They're just simply members who've just been invested with additional responsibility. It's really what it comes down to. We all have the same responsibilities. It's just deacons and elders have additional ones. So the purpose of every member is this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If there's something that is something for you to just take to heart and, and memorize and hold on to, all right, this is it. This is the center point of your life, is to, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We come back to the purpose of what we were created for. We were created to glorify God in every part of our lives, and we we're to enjoy Him, which means we we're to love Him supremely. He is to be our greatest treasure. He is what we were created for. He is all what we are to love. This is our purpose, to glorify Him and to love Him supremely. A famous pastor wrote a best-selling book um, trying to help people to figure out their purpose of their, their life. Sold millions and millions of copies. I'll tell you what your purpose is. It's right here. It's to glorify God in your life and make Him the treasure of your heart above all other things. That is the purpose that you were created for and lived for. Now, with that being said, and that's your purpose, that then pushes us to your mission. The mission of all believers, because God is what we seek to glorify, and He is the treasure of our life, then we are on mission to do what? Create worldwide worship in our sphere of influence. This is what we were called to do. No one was ever called to be saved just to be saved. We were all called to be saved, to get involved in the mission of Christ. And this is accomplished then by our objectives. Our objectives of members, the objectives are a little bit more robust, by the way. The first one is we need to worship God in every part of our life. See, the Christian life is not just a Sunday thing. The Christian title is not something you stick on your, your, on your life as a sticker. It's not a separate part of your identity. right? It is the thing that defines you in every other part of your life. Right? For us, those of us who follow Christ, Sunday morning corporate worship is an important part of our life. But that's not all there is to worship in the Christian life. We're to worship God and glorify Him in every part of our lives. As, our, as parents, as children, as spouses, as neighbors, as citizens of, of this country, as community members, as employees, as business owners, every part of our life is meant to be lived in worship to God. The second objective is to grow in a relationship with God. And we do that through spiritual disciplines. We're all called not to just be believers and that's it. We're called to grow in that relationship with Christ. We're to grow in our understanding of Him and our knowledge of Him and our relationship to Him. And we do that through spiritual disciplines like time in the Word, 
Time in prayer, time with fellowship, time in Bible study, time in discipleship. These are not new things, by the way. We know these things. Many of these things you can do on your own, but many of these things require also a connection to a local body of believers. It's inescapable. It's inescapable. We cannot be what God's calling us to be on our own. The third objective is to fulfill the Great Commission. This is the one we want to avoid, by the way. But this is the one that's prominently, you know, visibly part of what we're called to. And we talk about this over and over and over again. All of us are called to this calling. We're to be part of Christ's work to redeem the lost. I mean, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you to do, which means we individually need to evangelize the lost and proclaim the gospel to other people, calling them to repent and believe. I want you to understand, every single one of you, including me, are called to this calling right here. We're to know the gospel well enough to be able to share the gospel with other people and tell them about the hope we have in Christ. And then once they believe, then we should have the wisdom and the training to say, now it's time for you to get plugged in to a church because you need the church body. That's what the whole baptism thing is about, is connecting them to a local church. And then we're to help train them and disciple them to worship God and to follow Christ and join the mission. You see the multiplication method that Christ has employed here. Discipleship comes from all levels, by the way. It comes from the church organizationally, it comes from church leadership, and it also comes from individual members, which means all of you should learn, be learning in the process right now of how to disciple someone else. Every one of you should be in the process of growing to where you individually can walk somebody through the basics of the Christian life. That's part of the mission and the objectives of the believer. And then we have the final objective. This is one I think we... we are pretty good at as a church, but it's important nonetheless, and that is to build up the body of Christ and encourage each other and exhort each other and equip each other. This is the reason why Kim and I stayed when we first came here is because of the encouragement we got from this church family and the exhortation we got to continue on. And certainly this church has equipped us but this is a part of a mission of every believer that we all ought to be participating in that. That's how we cre create worldwide worship, is that we encourage people in their faith. We exhort them to stay with it, and then we equip them with the things that they don't know. Now, with all of that, we talked about now for a long time here, the theology of the church to get to this question. Where do we go from here? What does the new normal hold for us as we keep in mind these things that we have talked about here? Because these things right here that we're talked about, these are the things that don't change or not supposed to change. These are the foundational things that must always be present within the church. Our purpose as a church and as members will always be the same purpose until Christ comes home or takes us home. Our mission objectives will not change. I mean, they might change like with some of the tasks we do. We might try, you know, technology, you know. We might try, you know, different ways of reaching the community. We might try bulletins or inserts or programs. But ultimately, the foundational things that we are to do and to be, those things are not going to ever change. If they do, we have lost our way. Let's so be really, really clear about that. We are to go in the world corporately and individually and create worldwide worship. That's what the call is. That is what history is pointing us to. No matter what happens in the world around us, that is the goal, and that won't change. Now, we might use technology to help us, we might use different medias to be able to accomplish this. In fact, one of the things I'm even thinking about is how do we continue to stay connected to people? You know, through, is it through email newsletters? Is it through paper mail? How do we do that? These are things we wrestle with, but ultimately, right, whatever we do, we will never lose the need for us to stay 
connected together. We will never lose the need for us to be a family, not at a distance. I want you to understand me. Right? I appreciate the fact that we can have people at home when they're sick and watch a worship service. I appreciate the fact that we have teachings now for several years that are available online that people can go back and listen to old sermons and messages and teachings and, and glean from them. Those are important, but that does not replace the gathering of the local body of believers. We need to gather for worship. We need to encourage each other to, to, to continue on. We need to love each other. We need to collectively shine the light of Christ by our actions, not just on social media, but in person. How do we do those things? Those are things that are still to be answered. But we know that we still have to have some kind of personal contact in the world around us. That's not going to change. We need to declare the gospel at every opportunity. And praise the Lord, we can reach a lot more people with the gospel message through technology. But I'm going to tell you the way the gospel works is that God uses individual people to build relationships with individual people who connect with each other in a way that opens their hearts because that's how God has ordained for it to happen. And the seed gets sown. If it was just about mass media technology, Billy Graham would have saved everybody. You know what I mean? Standing here right now, I want you to understand, I don't know exactly how the new normal is going to look, what it's going to look like for us moving forward. I, I will say that. I have the, the honesty to be able to say that. I don't know right, how the new normal is going to affect us completely. But I, what I do know is all this old normal stuff that we talked about from the Bible, that's not going to ever change. We're still going to be First Baptist Church, a loving community of Christ followers, passionately in pursuit of Jesus, deeply connected to one another, and completely committed to sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. And that will never change because our God doesn't change. And you can count on that as we move forward. And so as long as they don't burn this place down, we're going to gather here for regular Sunday worship. And we're going to continue to meet with each other in discipleship. And I'm going to encourage you to go out into the world and love people with the love of Christ and share the hope of Christ with them and pray that God changes their hearts so he can redeem his people. Because history is coming to a point where we're all going to stand with people we don't know in languages we've never heard, of, of skin tones we've never seen, all together with one voice, we're going to worship the living and true God. It'll be the most glorious thing we've ever seen. That is the end that we were created for. That is what we labor for. Let us be faithful to finish that mission. Let us be mindful of that as we close this year and begin another one. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.